At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the 14th episode of Best in Show, the only podcast focused on the rabbit and KV show industry. I'm Bryony Smith, and as always, I am here with a wonderful and talented Alan Messick. Alan, how are things in California? Bryony, I have a big news. Did you hear that the ARBA convention in Louisville later this year is canceled? What? No. Where did you hear that? <laughs> well, Facebook, duh. Oh, of course. Of course. I must be behind in my scrolling. All right, guys. We admit. Total satire. We're just joking. But this was a, a real thing this week, and it uh, kind of raised some some feathers and some people that uh, are behind the scenes working really hard towards this convention, which, by the way, of course, is happening later this year. So, Brian, did you happen to bump into that Facebook post uh, this week on social media? I heard about it before I did, and um, it got bannered around. It was actually suggested that we use this platform to address that. Um, I was actually the Facebook page manager for the 2012 convention in Wichita. I know that you've done duties like that for some shows. And let me tell you, stuff like this made for our worst nights as volunteers. Nothing will ruin your day like a post like this. You start getting bombarded with people who thankfully are trying to listen to the source. Um, You've got a lot of messages to respond to, but then you also get you know, the stuff that spreads like wildfire. So you're trying to put out one fire on this group, one fire in that group. You got text messages rolling in. It just, it completely ruins your night. And it really is disheartening and discouraging for volunteers that put a lot of time and effort into this. And it always happens at the worst time. I know we got one like New Year's morning um, right before the Wichita convention. It was awful. Yeah, it's there. It's damaging. You know, I've been on those Facebook groups too and moderated the one for a long time for West Coast Classic. And when you see that stuff, you're just like, oh my gosh. And then when you're trying to work on other things, which are really important, like putting on the show, and suddenly your energy has to focus towards squelching this fire that's really gone rampant. It's like hens in a hen house on, you know, it, it's, yeah, it brings you down and then you have to take energy, which really should be used more usefully towards the, the you know, the building of the show. Uh, and then you're just dealing with drama. So totally a bummer, guys. Convention is happening this year. We're really excited about it. Back in Louisville, that's the twenty-one or twenty twenty-one crowd uh, bringing us back to Louisville for the Airbnb convention. And I think it's going to be a big show. And so many of us from coast to coast are planning on being there. So if you heard the rumors, read the rumors, it's not true, and it's really happening this convention. So be there, be square, 
get your hotel rooms and start making plans now. Yes, absolutely. And as with anything, if you have questions, just please go to the source. Um, if, if the convention were to be canceled, you're not going to hear it on a Facebook post from a person that you saw at a show a few weeks ago. It's going to come from the board. This is exactly what happened last year. There's, you know, announcements are planned. Um, no one's going to scoop this, I promise you. And, you know, that's a good point. It's going to come from the convention host. And Facebook has this great button. It's called Share. And, you know, we're lucky that a lot of our stuff gets shared. and when it's something like a big post, you know, like a, the convention happening, if it's coming from a host, it's going to be shared and over and over again from the reliable source. So, you know, check your sources. It's just like Googling anything and, or Wikipedia. Um, you know, it goes with a big disclaimer. So uh, definitely check your sources. Um, okay. Off our soapbox, we just wanted to give a nod to the very dedicated crew behind that Louisville convention coming up because they are having a wonderful show. We're all going to be there. You guys should go to, and, uh, uh, definitely watch the validity of some of these things that go out on our social media. Um, so we've had some great feedback over the podcast and it's coming to us a lot of times uh, through Facebook messenger or in text messages. And we want to remind everyone that we now have an email address. So if you'd like to contact Bryony or I regarding the podcast, that's the best way. And I said last week towards the end of the episode, I do not do Facebook messenger. So if you message me on Facebook, I'm not going to read it. Um, I'm not even going to see it, actually. I turned off notifications. I just can't do it. But this email is a great way to reach us, whether you've got questions or comments, um, uh, maybe even some suggestions for a future episode. You can email us at podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. Again, podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. And that's all spelled out. We want to thank everyone that's reached out to us. Uh, both Brian and I have received so much uh, really positive remarks, whether we're, you know, getting it in text or an email or uh, when people stop us at a show and say, Hey, I love your podcast. Um, <laughs> Brian and I were chatting last night and it seems to be a trend that people are, you know, working in their barns when they are, when they're watching the podcast or listening to the podcast. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, uh, when you're cleaning your trays or, you know, grooming your rabbits for the next show, turn on your podcast and we're there along with you. So that's a great, that was kind of a nod to us. And I love that, that people are doing that uh, while they're working with their rabbits. Um, yeah. And Brandy, do you have any um, of those feedbacks? I think we'd like to start sharing comments and feedback from from listeners as they as they come in. Do you have any to share? Um, I know that you'd mentioned one that came to you, um, but yeah, we've heard so many good things. And I think the thing that surprises me is that we're hearing feedback from people of all ages, people that we didn't know really were even into podcasts. Um, but I think you know the the best feedback we hear and the thing that we we were going for when we started this is that people say that they listen to it on the way to shows and that it gets them excited to go to a show. That was our whole reason for doing that, to inject some positivity, some excitement in the hobby. Um, I know I talked to Bridget Armstrong and Hunter Lawley at a show a few weeks ago, and they told me that they had kind of planned to save some podcasts for some upcoming trips, but they couldn't wait. So they just listened <laughs> to them on the way home. <laughs> I love that. You know, you and I are podcast listeners prior to this, and we have, I'm sure you have the same reaction, like, I'm going to hold off, I'm going to hold off. And then all of a sudden, you're just binging out on all of the, the, the episodes. I binged a single podcast all the way from here to Salt Lake City on the first leg of my Reno <laughs> wow. drive. 14 episodes. Well, that's a long drive. <laughs> um, well, hey, I'm going to read one that that I got in a text from Sarah Kitzimbel. Of course, she's a longtime mini-lop breeder from Wisconsin. I've known Sarah for about 20 years. Like We knew each other when we were kids and youth, and now she's um, now she's an, an adult, and she's a, a nurse as a profession, and trying to get her to take that judge test, because I think she'd be a, a great one. She, uh, she texted me, and she said, I am so glad I discovered the podcast the other day. 
I'm actually home recovering from some surgery, and it's nice to have something to listen to. I just finished listening to episode seven, and I especially enjoyed Dr. Scott Williamson's talk. I'm going to re-listen to that one and take some notes. I've been doing this for 25 plus years, and I still learn a lot every time I listen to the podcast. So thank you, Sarah, for your positive comments. If you guys have one too that's you know similar, or maybe you've got some criticism to tell, we'd love to hear it. Um, and as Brian and I are both geeks and nerds on rabbit history. If you've got some cool stuff, some cool facts like hiding out in your archives, we'd love to hear it and uh, be able to share them with everyone else on the podcast. And Sarah, we learn something every time too. And that's um, actually, we've gotten a lot of really specific feedback about that episode with Dr. Williamson that people liked it. I think people found that very accessible. Um, you know, it's something that anyone can do to improve your herd. So we kind of took that feedback and that factors into our topic for tonight's episode. Totally. And I have to tell you, I dump my water crocs way more than I used to after Scott Williamson's <laughs> talk. And I know Scott Williamson really well, and he's, he's always about cool, clean, and abundant water. But something about that that interview really, uh, really honed in, and now I'm doing it even more. It's, it's made for healthier rabbits, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Me too. Me too. So I'm super excited about this episode. Um, we are bringing back our ARBA president, Dr. Chris Hayhow. And Brian, you're going to take over that interview very shortly. But uh, before we do that, we're going to dive into this time in. And I picked 1980 because actually that was the year that Dr. Chris Hayhow uh, graduated from veterinary school. So back in 1980, what was going on in in rabbits and especially in you know, our continent? So I dove into um, the book, Domestic Rabbits and Their Histories, Breeds of the World by Bob Whitman. By the way, if you don't have this book, it's incredible. It's so thick. It's huge. It covers not just rabbit breeds here in the U.S., but all over the world. And you can buy it through the ARBA website. Again, Domestic Rabbits and Their Histories, Breeds of the World by Bob Whitman. And I focus tonight on, or I'd like to share some some tidbits from 1980 when the Minilop breed was recognized by the ARBA. And it's hard to think about the Minilop not being a recognized breed, but it was 1980 that brought them here. And we'll go through uh, just some facts from Bob Whitman's book. And so we're going to start in Germany. So the Minilop was actually developed in Germany. And given the name, I'm not going to say it because I don't speak German, but the translation is German Little Hanging Ear. And there were several people in Germany at the time that were working on these kind of mini lop versions. And behind them, um, in terms of breeding, were French lops, English lops, New Zealand's. It says Polish. I'm wondering if that's Probably Britannia Petite because Polish outside of the United States means Britannia Petite, uh, Chinchilla, and the Dwarf Lop, which was actually newly recognized in the 50s in Germany. So we're talking in Germany in the 50s when this breed we call today Mini Lop was developed um, in Germany. Um, let's fast forward. What happened in 1965, the the breed, those um, hanging ear <laughs> Mini Lops were exported to other countries such as Holland and then in the United States in 1972, um, they actually came here for the first time. And Bob Hirschbach, uh, who also was a legendary ARBA judge, he was from Watsonville, California, uh, very close to actually where, where Chris Semney lives. He was the first importer of the Mini Lop breed back then. And he imported a trio. They were agoutis and also a white doe. And believe it or not, at the time, he also imported Rhinelanders, which had basically gone extinct in the United States at that point. So in this importation of the first mini lops, Bob Hirschbach brings back Rhinelanders and that started the foundation for, you know, the, the breed that we, we also know today, which by the way, Rhinelanders were already recognized, but, um, but uh, let's fast forward what happened with that breed. So Bob Hirschbach, who was a master breeder and of course a judge, he is, you know, 
thumbing through these rabbits and, and breeding them and, and creating broken for the first time and broken mini lops um, under Bob Hirschbach's care were actually made from standard chinchillas and a broken French lop. And after some selective breeding, the size went down and he really started to like, uh, you know, kick this breed off. So the breed eventually goes to an Airbnb convention and it's not well received, believe it or not. So we're talking the seventies. Now the mini lop breed, Bob Hirschbach's working on him. He's had some other help from like Herb Dyke and the people at the Airbnb convention are not so warm to this new breed, which you're thinking, well, gosh, at the time they were the first, one of the first small breeds. They were uh, certainly the smallest lop breed because they again, preceded the Holland lop, but they weren't, they weren't quite, you know, um, loved like they are today. And it's again, really hard to, to think about. But what's interesting is that during that time, they had a different name. They actually had that German name and people were not very receptive to it. So in 1977, they changed the name to Minilop. And wouldn't you know that they, the, the fanfare started and people really got into them. And it really was a testament to the name change. And that was under Herb Dyke, who would all ultimately bring the breed and its certificate of development before the ARBA. And Herb Dyke was from Sepulveda, California, which is down south uh, in Southern California, a few hours from where I live. Um, but Herb Dyke was the successful COD holder for the Minilop breed. And then in 1980, the breed was recognized at the 1980 Milwaukee, Wisconsin convention. So all the way back in 1980, that's what was going on. Bryony, what do you have on the world side in 1980? 1980 was a busy year. Starting in January, the Pittsburgh Steelers won their fourth NFL championship in six seasons. It was a dynasty of the late 70s and early 80s. In February was the ABSCAM operation. That was an FBI sting that targeted members of Congress. And if you haven't heard of this, you might have. It was actually fictionalized in the movie American Hustle a few years ago. It was one of my favorites. Also in February, the Winter Olympics were held in Lake Placid, New York. This was the year that the U.S. defeated the Soviet Union to win gold in the hockey tournament. Um, the Miracle on Ice for the men's hockey team won gold. And East Germany won the most medals that year. East and West Germany were still competing as separate countries at this time. In March, President Carter announced that the U.S. would be boycotting the 1980 Summer Games in Moscow. In May, the global eradication of the smallpox virus was declared. That's why Alan and I, you, neither of us have smallpox scars. We didn't have to get that vaccine as kids. Wait, also, you mean the vaccine didn't kill people back then? No, in Just fact, kidding. it didn't. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. Okay, I don't know if you're vaccine or not, but <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, I'll, I'll digress. <laughs> A vaccine worked. Um, also in May, Mount St. Helens erupted in Washington. In June... Um, the first 24-hour news channel debuted. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. It was CNN, the cable news network. There was also a record-breaking summer heat wave in the U.S. that summer, June through about September. In July of that year, at the Republican National Convention, Ronald Reagan received the Republican nomination. Of course, he campaigned throughout that year and was eventually elected in November. In December, John Lennon was murdered outside the Dakota apartment building in New York City by a crazed fan. Debuting in 1980, all sorts of iconic things from our childhoods, the Rubik's Cube, Pac-Man, and Showbiz Pizza. Did you ever go to a Showbiz Pizza? I have no idea what that is. Is it like Chuck E. Cheese? It was like before Chuck E. Cheese, only way creepier. They had this animatronic like animal band. Um, 
on stage, you know, you'd like eat your pizza, which is probably like Chuck E. Cheese, tastes like cheese on cardboard. Um, <laughs> you know, kids didn't care. And this little animatronic band would play on stage just kind of like intermittently. There was like, I think a fox and a gorilla. It was kind of creepy. But Are it had games. It wasn't only in Kansas. Stuff. No, actually, it wasn't. It started in Kansas City, but it wasn't. Uh-huh. It may have been kind of like Midwestern. I, there was one in Wichita, but it wasn't <laughs> only in Kansas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was fun. It had like the arcade games that Chuck E. Cheese did. And I think Chuck E. Cheese actually did eventually um, take that company over and kind of turn it into a less creepy concept. Believe it or not, there was something creepier than that mouse. Um, I, I was more of a... <laughs> Casa Bonita in Tulsa kind of kid, but <laughs> I don't know what that is either. Uh, Chuck E. Cheese, like I think I went into one as a kid, and everything was like sticky because it's yeah. like saliva. Like, it's like it's like a playground where they're eating cheese and bad pizza. <laughs> it's not, not, not what I want to do. I went once. I was in eighth grade. They let us choose where we wanted to eat for our class field trip, and we were just, I guess, feeling absurd that day. So we decided to go to Chuck E. Cheese and, you know, romped around like eighth graders trying to get up to whatever mischief we could. But yeah, the pizza was terrible. Everything was probably sticky and gross. Um, yeah, yeah, we were just, you know, whacking using the whack-a-mole mallets on everything we could. <laughs> Thank you, 1980. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, any guesses on the top TV shows for 1980? Oh gosh, oof! I actually, I'm I'm excited. Probably you were like, this is before I was born. So, um, uh, I have no idea. Uh, who's the boss? No, that was later. I I don't know. Um, it was before we were born, but actually, like I remember watching a lot of these shows. They were a lot of them were very long running. Um, oh, number Gilligan's one, Island. No, <laughs> not oh, Gilligan's bummer. Island. Oh. I did um, a lot of reruns too. Number one was Dallas. Oh, I yeah, of course. Think ni- I think 80 might have been the year that they did the famous Who Shot JR episode. It could have been 81, but mm. I still, I to this day, cannot drive into the metro area without hearing that theme song in my head. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Dukes of Hazzard, um, 60 Minutes, of course, which is still running. Um, one of my very favorite shows in the whole world. I Apparently, I used to come running when I heard the theme song for this when I was a kid, even MASH yeah. and The Love Boat. The love, but both had a kind of iconic um, intros, right? Yes. With their music. We won't sing them, but. <laughs> yeah, we won't put you guys through that. <laughs> so That was a in, busy year. Yeah, it really was. It was. And there were a lot of, you know, iconic shows that, like I said, I mean, I remember watching these shows as kids, as a kid. Maybe not. I think MASH ended in 83. I probably don't remember that during its first run, but it went into syndication almost oh, immediately. Big time. I do remember watching Dallas first run. It, it stretched into the early 90s. And um, what's funny you mentioned Mount St. Helens because um, I think I did like a high school project on it. So I was kind of obsessed with it when I was in high school. And then when I went to the Portland convention, in 98, I met Karen Walser, Karen Levitt. She's an ARB judge from Washington. And I don't even know how the subject came up. Oh, I guess because I visited Mount St. Helens during the convention, I was, I had to go see it. And she's like, Oh yeah, I lost my car in, in Mount St. Helens. And <laughs> it was like, not a lava flow, but you know, there's a lot of mud. Like apparently her, her car was lost in, in mud from the, from the eruption of Mount St. Helens up in Washington. Wow. So that's my little rabbit uh, tie in there. (laughs) The top songs in 1980. Number one was Call Me by Blondie. Uh, Number two was Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 by Pink Floyd. Uh, Rounding out some of the top 10. Crazy Little Thing Called Love by Queen. It's Still Rock and Roll to Me by Billy Joel. The Rose, an icky ballad. And one I've always had a soft spot for Escape, a.k.a. the Pina Colada song. Oh, my God. A lot of the songs are still rather popular today. They are. And they don't like 
it was kind of between you know disco and that really synthy 80s stuff that i always talk about hating <laughs> yeah uh, they're actually, more classic about hating ballads but uh, that's a different <laughs> subject okay and bat miller and the rose is a fine song if you ask me <laughs> I'm gonna play it for you sometime when you're not when you're not like ready for it. Oh, lucky me! (laughs) (laughs) So that's 1980 in the world. Today I have Dr. Chris Hayhow back with us again, and we're going to talk a little bit about rabbit health. Um, Some of the first questions that we're going to have are some of the very common ones that we see you guys post on Facebook that we see regularly in rabbit care groups from newer breeders and even from some of our more experienced breeders. A lot of us don't typically work with vets. Um, There are a lot of vets out there that don't really work with rabbits. So a lot of the health information that we have is kind of by word of mouth. And there are some things that are a little bit controversial or some common questions or you know, some some of those things that often come up. And while we have Dr. Hayhow here, we would like to give you guys a little visit to the Rabbit Vets office. So thank you, Dr. Hayhow, for joining us. Oh, thank you. I hope I can help some folks. I'm sure you will. So the first question I have for you, what supplies would you suggest that breeders or owners keep on hand in case of medical emergencies? That's a good question. I think there's some routine problems that may come up that uh, if you don't have plans in place can can be very frustrating. So I think some items that you're going to want to have in place, and I would say these are emergency supplies, and that is, especially with summer on the horizon and already there in some places, is fly spray. In case rabbits get fly blown, whether they get diarrhea or a wound or something. So fly spray and scissors to make sure you can trim hair away if a rabbit has diarrhea or a wound so you can get to it. Um, Q-tips and things like that. Some type of an antibiotic ointment. I'm not big on putting antibiotic ointments on wounds, um, but at least some antibiotic ointment if there is a local infection. I'm I'm more keen on using Vaseline type products, especially if you've got a, a local wound or something on there just to help soothe it and keep it moist and healed. You're probably going to want to make sure you've got some blood stop powder. And um, I would make sure, you know, especially sore hocks or something like that. If they get a wound, you may want some preparation aids to take down some of the swelling, some betadine or some iodine solution. And then the, the one, um, injectable thing I think is a good idea to keep around. And usually if you do, then you won't ever need it is oxytocin. If you have a rabbit that's having trouble having babies, because it'll help contract the uterus down and help push them out. So if you get oxytocin, you're going to want to have a, a, a TB syringe or a three CC syringe to make an injection. But I think for, for most people for emergency, that that's where I'd start at for um, having things handy most of the time. That's a good list. Um, what? How much oxytocin would you give for a rabbit? Well, for, for most of them, you're only talking one or two units. You're not talking very much. Because if it's going to work, it'll help contract down the whole reproductive tract at once. And if the kits are ready to pop out, then that, that should get it going. And you can give it in the muscle or under the skin either way. In the muscle, it'll act a little quicker. But you're not talking very much. And that's one of those things, if, at least if you have it around, then you probably aren't going to need it because so, you're prepared. 
<laughs> Absolutely. That's the way those things work. So in the last episode, um, Alan and I in the intro talked a little bit about um, something I've kind of been dealing with, which is some scours or diarrhea in young rabbits, especially when the weather changes really rapidly. Of course, in Kansas, we go from nice and sunny to damp and rainy just at the drop of a hat. And that's kind of where we've been is damp and rainy. Um, so what would you recommend to prevent some of these problems or um, maybe solve some of them if you're caught by surprise? Well, I think... Anytime you're raising young animals, they're going to go through quite a bit of stress, especially when you have young stock that's going from being on mom and nursing to a pelleted diet. So, And I think one thing, especially people that show rabbits, everybody gets in a big hurry and wants to get them to the show right away. Well, if they get diarrhea and die, they're never going to make it to a show. So I I, I think it's important that we limit feed and don't push them too hard. And, and yeah, they're going to be hungry sometimes. And that's why I always recommend, first off, to limit feed. Don't give them any more than they're going to clean up in about 20 to 30 minutes. They don't need to have a big full bowl sitting there all the time where they're just going to sit in it and use it as a bathroom or something or overeat. And if you want to make sure their bellies are full, then give them straw for, for the fiber, for the scratch, just to keep their intestines working. And I think those are probably the two most important things for, as far as diarrhea prevention and helping rabbits transition from a, from a milk-based diet to a, to a pelleted diet. So being, being patient and slowly bring them up to feed. And I know Sometimes people say, oh, they're going to starve to death. Well, most of the time, rabbits only eat once or twice a day anyhow. Same way with nursing. Most does only nurse once a day anyhow. So you can train them. They Maybe the first day, all of them won't get the hint that, hey, I'm only going to leave this food bowl in there or provide them feed for this short period of time. But the next day, I guarantee you, they're going to be right up there to eat. And if you find out that they need more or they're, they need a little more condition, then you can give them more feed. But I think that the key is to slowly bring them up to full feed, so they don't so they don't overeat as they're as they're growing. That's interesting, and I've seen discussions about that very topic just in the past couple of days. You know, somebody complained that their doe was scratching feed out because they free fed her while she was on a litter, um, and obviously that's that's a waste of feed all around. Yeah, and then what it does is the feed sits there and ferments, and then the flies lay eggs in it, and then you've got a moisture problem. You're, if they urinate in it, then you're going to have an ammonia problem, and then you got fly problems. So, I, I think the best thing is is to to limit the feed and just make sure they get enough to be in condition, but don't overfeed them so they get fat or they waste it. Excellent. So, what are some other steps that breeders and exhibitors can take to prevent some common disease issues, such as maybe snuffles or other you know common problems in the herd? Well, I think, and, and, and I practiced for years, and we used to call it, everybody wants management in a bottle. You know, I've got a problem. What, what, what dose do I give of antibiotic A, B, or C to get it over with and to turn this around? And invariably, it's a management issue. So I think the first thing is, is when you raise rabbits, you need to think about, first off, what's the, what's the ventilation like? Because ventilation you're going to constantly we want to bring in some new fresh air because when the air moves through your building, it's removing dust, ammonia, 
viruses, bacteria, anything that's in the air. And, and, and ammonia is heavy, so it's going to stay lower on the ground. So unless you're down there and it's a high level, you, you, unless you're low, you're not even going to smell it. So I think ventilation is very key. And, and the other thing to think about part and parcel with ventilation is moisture control. Because you want to keep as much of the area dry as possible. Because if there's a lot of moisture, then you're going to have flies come in and other pests. And and so not only moisture control, but sanitation. You know, get rid of all the debris and any feed bags and things that are laying around and, and nest boxes that you're going to clean some other time and you just take out after you have a litter. Those are great bedding places for rats and mice and raccoons, possums, whatever, critters. So you need to think about how do you keep pests out? And when I say pests, I mean flies, rats, mice, birds, the neighbor's cats, anything that may contaminate the feed and water or disrupt things. So, um, and then, and then the final thing I think that's very important for people to think about is when you're taking rabbits to the show or bringing in new rabbits is quarantining or thinking about some isolation area so that you can take care of the new rabbits that you buy last. So that if you have your stock that's very valuable or your breeding genetics, your breeding stock, you take care of them first and then you go to the new animals until you know for sure that they're healthy and you can assimilate them into the into the herd with the rest of the rabbits. So I think for me, it's a whole, what do you have a plan? How, how can you control um, or prevent disease outbreaks before they even happen? And, and I'm not sure everybody thinks about that, but with this dealings that we've had recently with this rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus, hopefully that's helping people think about it more and more so they can protect their rabbits from from outside possibly uh, and limiting exposure. So I, I think that's something that I, I would stress anybody that has rabbits now or getting into it to think about what kind of ventilation system do I have? Am I keeping the moisture level down? Am I cleaning the place up or is there more I can clean? What am I doing for pests? You know, and I say any pests, flies, rats, mice, birds, anything, and just to to make sure the environment's as clean as possible. That's really great advice. And I, I think you're right. If we do some of those foundation things, we don't have to worry necessarily about treatment. So when we're talking about ammonia in the barn, how do you know if you've got an ammonia problem? How much is too much? Well, I, I would say if you're if you go into the barn and you can smell the urine and you're probably several feet away from the bottom cages, that if you can smell it, I guarantee you the rabbits can. So you shouldn't want, you should never want to smell it because the rabbits, as I said, ammonia is dense, so it's going to stay near the bottom. So if you've got stacked cages, the poor rabbit on the bottom may have the worst of it. Or if you don't flush your cages out, or if you're not cleaning them daily, so ideally you don't want any ammonia. And then the other thing to think about is is you can help diminish the ammonia problem by making sure that the bottom, if you're going to have uh, open for ventilation, it's at the bottom and that you have vents at the top of your building. So the 
air, cool air can come in the bottom, move through and be exhausted out or vent out the ceiling. And that way, any of the, um, as I was saying earlier, any dust or ammonia or viruses, bacteria, whatever may be in the air and hair and debris can be carried on out the ceilings and, and diluted out if more than anything. You know, that's the, the, old, the old statement was the solution to pollution is dilution. So if you dilute that out, you were going to lower the level of irritants, whether that's ammonia or dust or whatever. So hopefully the rabbits won't be getting sick because if by the time the rabbits are smelling it and you're starting to hear rabbits sneeze, you've already lost the battle most of the time. The solution to pollution is dilution. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> that works for a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what sort of uh, routine preventive treatment would you recommend for rabbits? Well, rabbits are really pretty hardy animals, even though a lot of people think they're very delicate. I think rabbits are really pretty tough as long as you set them up with a good ventilation system and they're not damper, and they're not overheated. You know, rabbits can tolerate cold very well. I remember when I was a young kid, I had rabbits outside, and in the wintertime, I'd just put plastic in the front of the cages, and the wind would blow through, and I raised guinea pigs outside, and I'd just throw extra straw in the cages, and they'd have babies year-round and stuff, and everybody told me, oh, you can't do that. Yeah, they can. It's just the, the owner doesn't like being out there. But rabbits really don't like the hot weather. So, you know, all the years I raised rabbits, the only time I've ever lost a rabbit, I don't remember ever losing a rabbit, I thought, per se, due to the cold, as long as I had them plenty of fresh water and you kept taking it to them so they could get hydrated. The only time I think I really lost rabbits was when, in the summertime, I lived in Nebraska for a few years, and it got so hot there that some of the rabbits, they just lay on their side. It was so hot. And I had a big barn, and I couldn't hardly get enough air moving through. And so I think, you know, the, the big as far as preventative is making sure you've got good ventilation and stuff. But I, like I said, I think rabbits are pretty tough. As far as routine treatments, you know, there's no vaccines per se right now that we need to give rabbits. The only thing would be is, and, and, I, and I will say this, because I know several people in the last year or so have shown me their rabbits where they were losing some adults. And I said, well, with diarrhea problems. And I said, it makes no sense, but let's check them for coccidia. And they had coccidia problems. We treated them and then everything was fine. So um, those were people that are bringing rabbits from, you know, bringing young rabbits in and grower rabbits and things. So it may very well have been that they brought in, whether it was a resistant strain of coccidia or whatever. But as far as treatments, that's really the only um, parasite or treatment that you may want to think about doing for rabbits. And and I know there's people that have different ideas on what what we ought to use. I think the Co-Rid, the Amprolium is a very good product. It's, I know it's virtually impossible right now to get the, the sulfa products, whether it's sulfoquinoxalin or sulfamethazine or whatever, or dimethoxine. Um, then any other thing, if you've got wool type animals or you think you got fermites, ivermectin is a very good product. Um, whether you want to give it externally, same way with for treating ear mites, you can put it a drop in their ear or on their neck. Um, and 
and realize that you're probably going to want to retreat, uh, retreat the rabbits in probably 14 to 21 days. But Ivomex is a good product. But I think except for external parasites, and yeah, rabbits get fleas sometimes too. But as far as treatment of rabbits, I think the main thing I would think about is coccidia, even though most rabbits, we assume, develop immunity to coccidia by the time they're six months of age. That's That's been the old dogma for years and years is you develop immunity to it. Now, whether that's changing, I do not know. But as I said, I've had a few people that did have adult rabbits that they were losing and we treated them and now things seem to be fine. So as I said, between coccidia and then external parasites, those would be the the things that I would recommend people consider monitoring or treating routinely. So what about uh, worms? Because I notice a lot of times when breeders or judges notice that rabbits are getting enough to eat, but they have poor condition, they're rough and flush, they don't finish a coat, worms get the blame. Um, do you think that that's likely or are there other, probably other causes for that? Well, I, I can tell you that as far as other parasites in rabbits, whether it's roundworms, whipworms, hookworms, pinworms, nobody that I'm aware of has ever shown that they, they're associated with a, a disease syndrome. That doesn't mean they're not there and you can't treat for them. And I know pinworms are the, the tapeworm-looking little bug critters we see. They can cause a volume problem, but they're not usually associated with a major disease problem. And, they, and, and those parasites are reasonably easy to treat, whether you use the Panicure, the Fenbendazole, or the Ivomec. Um, the only thing I will say is pinworms, you know, Ivomex is a very good product, but pinworms are pretty resistant. So you may have to treat two or three times to get rid of them if you have them. But I can tell you through the years and all the rabbits that I've necropsied, you know, cut open to check them and stuff, rarely, rarely have I seen any parasites. And if I did, the easiest ones to see were pinworms, and I've only ever seen them in a, in a handful of rabbits. So. I think usually if rabbits are in poor condition, it's probably due to A, genetics, or B, people are under or overfeeding them, if I can say that. so Absolutely. <laughs> I know that um, in the past several years, as we moved to using more wire cages, we don't commonly see ear mites, although I've actually DQ'd a few rabbits for that this spring. What treatment or prevention would you recommend for ear mites? Well, ear, you know, ear mites live on the surface of the inside of the ear itself, the ear canal, the, the pinna, you know, the long portion of their ear. They irritate it and then they live off the the blood and the, the serum, all the debris that once they irritate the ears, that's their that's their food. And they get in there and lay eggs. So if you're going to uh, try to get rid of them. You either want to drown them using mineral oil, olive oil, and, and clean as much of the debris out, and then you're going to have to retreat them at usually weekly intervals because if you don't get all the eggs the first time, they're going to keep hatching out. Or use the Ivomec products and just put them right directly in the ear. And even the Ivomec products won't kill the eggs. They're only going to kill the adults. So you're going to want to clean the ears as much as possible if they have them, and then Use some type of a miticide, and there, there's commercial products you can buy, but the uh, 
the good old mineral oil, olive oil, sweet oil, anything like that will drown them, or the Ivomec product will, is actually mitocidal. It'll, it'll kill them itself. And it's got a pretty darn good safety margin for it. Very good. That sounds like a good plan. Hopefully we won't be seeing a lot more of that on the tables. Yeah. Um, what would you suggest if an owner notices a, that a rabbit has Rhinex? This is a really common question that we see on social media. Well, I know there's been debate for years as far as what rabbits or when rabbits get upper respiratory, what's the bug? And then if they get the Rhinex itself, let's face it, Pastorella in studies they've done is present in anywhere from 40 to 90% of all commercial rabbits. Now, I know there's pathogen-free rabbits that are that do not have Pastorella. So the question is, is why do some rabbits break? Why do they have lesions and stuff? And, and you know, if you've, as I've said earlier, if you have good ventilation, the room's not, there's not standing water and it's damp and everything. So there's, and, there, and it's cool. Rabbits are pretty darn tough. And so probably the Pastorella isn't going to be a problem. But if the rabbit's got a depressed or a suppressed immune system for any reason, then that Pastorella bacteria has a chance to get a foothold and start causing disease. And whether that's going to end up in as an abscess or end up as a snuffles or full-blown pneumonia, once that bacteria goes throughout the bloodstream, it can go anywhere and it can end up in their brain also. So, um, and I'm not going to downplay the uh, E. cuniculis, the nosema portion of it, but I would say if, if you were going to Las Vegas and going to gamble, 19 out of 20 times you'd want to bet that it's probably the pastorella is the source of the problem. Now, I say that, that doesn't mean that um, E. cuniculi or Nosema, as it's known, isn't maybe some has some immunosuppressive effects, but more than anything, the pastorella is probably the cause. And by the time they're showing clinical signs, there probably is some damage in their in their inner ear from the abscess or somewhere in their brain, even where the bacteria shed. So, whether you can treat them with antibiotics to help reverse some of that just depends on how much damage has really been done or how big of an abscess there may be. Um, And and the best products still for Pasturella are the penicillin products. Now, some people right away go to the um, fluoroquinolones, you know, the Baytrill, the enrofloxacin type products. And, And they seem pretty effective too, but I would recommend people use the, if they're going to use something, I would use the penicillin products first for most of them. And then if they think they need something stronger, then they can go to the Baytrail type products. And as far as if you want to try to treat the E. cuniculi ones, I know some people have tried some of the fenbendazole and products like that, the benzimidazole dewormers. They, they've been shown to have some efficacy on the, on the organism. The problem is it, it doesn't seem to from everything I've read, it doesn't seem to um, result in a cure. And that E. cuniculi is constantly going to be shed through the through the urine, through the kidney. So that's another reason to keep the cages clean and everything if indeed 
you think you have that type of a problem. But I know if it was me, I would I would venture to say the problem is Rynek, most of the time the problem's going to be due to Pastorella multosa, the bacteria. So so since you mentioned Batril and penicillin both, um, I know at least where I live, Batril is by prescription. Penicillin I can just go pick up at the farm store. Um, can you explain to us a little bit why some of these drugs are sold over the counter, why some aren't, why some require prescription, uh, and about off-label usage, and kind of you know uh, why we need to get some from a vet and we can get others from the store? No, that's that's a great question, Bryony. What and what what's happened in the last oh I don't know maybe twenty thirty years maybe even longer now you lose track after a while is there's been growing amount of data on antibiotic resistance and that impact then on the efficacy of these antibiotics for people and whether that's due you know then whether that goes back to the the vancomycin, the methicillin resistance, and, um, you know, where, where do we go with these, especially for people that have had um, hospitalized and they've had heart surgeries and things. So the decision was made, FDA, and the decision was made that we would restrict some of the antibiotics and do away with First, it was growth-promoting levels of antibiotics. You know, we used to put the bambermycins and tetracyclines and different products in the feed for growth promotion. So we did away with that because we thought that was potentially, in animals, excuse me, because we thought that was inducing some antibiotic resistance. And then the decision was made to limit the use of certain classes of antibiotics for use only in humans or for prescription use if there was no other antibiotic available for a certain condition. And that's where they came up with the use, you know, when we started having all the fluoroquinolones used um, because they were used quite a bit and still are in human medicine. So we tried to limit, I say we, the medical profession tried to limit the use of some of these antibiotics in animals and then they made it prescription so they could track how much were being used. And the result has been a tremendous, tremendous decline in the number of usages and the volume used. I'm talking tons and tons decrease in use of antibiotics compared to what used to be used. Now, the result has been maybe there's some more animals that are um, getting some infections and some diseases but I think the other part of it is it's had people tighten up some of their management practices in some of our animal species. And probably one of the big ones you see is if you watch any of the ads on TV for poultry now, you know, everything is antibiotic free and no, no growth promoters and no hormones and stuff. And so, you know, everybody's cognizant of this fact that we need to have prudent use of antibiotics and make sure we're using them based on a proper diagnosis, there's a proper amount used, and that if it's not working, then we follow up on that. And so that's why they took a lot of these antibiotics and said, only under veterinary supervision. And then the last piece of that also then is is for withdrawal time. If you're injecting 
some of these antibiotics into animals that are going to be used for human consumption, we need to know that that withdrawal time is maintained. And so that's part of the reason they tightened up a lot of the sourcing of antibiotics and how people use them. And and I know it's a pain. I can tell you it's a pain for veterinarians for some of it too. I know when I was in practice and there'd be people stop by and, hey, I need this doc and I need this and this animal's got this. And some of them, I'd give them the stuff. And then if they didn't think they got better, then I'd end up out there treating them in a few days. And other ones, then when I was out doing normal herd health stuff for them, they'd say, hey, there's that one we treated and he was fine. So you know, I, I can argue both sides of it, but I think the ultimate benefit is that we're hopefully protecting the antibiotics that we're going to need for people that have some severe infections so that we'll be able to treat them and help them so that so the infections aren't fatal, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it goes back again to preventing some of these um, bacteria and viruses from becoming resistant and, you know, then maybe having more difficulty treating them. Everybody may not like it, but it's just, that's the world we live in today, I guess. I That it is. So let's move into the hot topic in rabbit health now, which is RHDV2. Um, the first question I have is, since RHDV2 has spread to native species and spread rapidly through the southwest and mountain states, a lot of breeders throughout the country have been taking steps to increase biosecurity in their herds. What steps do you think are the most critical to prevent transmission of this into our domestic herds? Oh, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. I think, I think the key is first is for people just to, and I would recommend two things. First, for people to sit outside their rabbitry, get a chair and sit outside and think about how that virus could get in their rabbitry. And, and let's face it, viruses can't walk. And so some, something's going to have to take them in there. And the most critical way for it to get in there is going to be a fomite, whether that's a person carrying it, another animal carrying it, or some some material, whether you bring it in on your shoes or you bring it in on your bedding or something like that. The other thing then is to sit inside the building or wherever you have your rabbits and think, okay, how else would it get in through here? And, you know, and you're thinking about things as far as for for birds and other critters that could get it on their feet you know, rats, mice, your neighbor's cat, whatever, because there's animals out there hunting all the time. And if you let the neighbor's cat in, he might have just killed a rabbit with it down the road, even though, you know, let's be honest, most wild rabbits, they don't, they aren't going to travel, what, half mile, three quarter mile, maybe some up to a mile, I would doubt most of them do, but they're not going to go very far. But that doesn't mean that the neighbor's cat or dogs aren't out hunting and could bring something to your property. So I, I think, First, just doing a risk assessment on where the risks may be. And once you do that, I think the first thing you're going to want to do is limit access. Limit access to people and animals. You know, keep, keep the pests out, as I, as I always say it is. And, and as I keep saying, that's, you know, rats, mice, birds, anything that you can keep access out. The other thing is, is, is there anything you can do to limit 
wild rabbits even coming into your yard? Do you have a fence up? Can you put something up to, to keep them away? Then once you're um, thinking about somebody entering your building, you need to make sure that you're not the one, you know, you, you don't go to some area or around where there was a dead rabbit or your, your neighbors had some losses and said, hey, come look and see what I got. What do you think? So you don't want to be the one to bring it in. So making sure that, A, you change clothes in between um, visits or make sure that if people are visiting, that they haven't been around rabbits for a few days. And I used to do a lot of work with people that had SPF, you know, pathogen-free swine and chickens and stuff. And a lot of those, if you were on another farm within a week, they wouldn't let you go there. And some of them, they made you shower in and shower out. And they provided you clothes and stuff. So I'm not thinking, I don't think everybody needs to go to that extreme, but you need to think about what's the weakest link for you to get the, the virus into your rabbitry. And then another thing to think about is a foot bath. You know, do you have some a foot bath so people can walk in, get their feet in it? So if there is virus or debris on their shoes, then it can be cleaned off and stuff. And so I, I think more than anything in the immediate area, it's just to use some common sense. Now, the other part then is if you're going to go to a show, how do you make sure you're not bringing it back? And one thing in our new ARBA guidelines that we put in there was a guidance as far as taking your car or vehicle, whatever you're driving, trailer, to a car wash and making sure you wash the undercarriage prior to going to the show and coming back just in case you've come across some contamination. And I know we had some people that poo-pooed it and said, oh, the chance is remote. It may very well be remote. But I guess I would rather go through that pain and have to do that than be the one that spread the virus around. So I, I think more than anything, I'd make sure people have a holistic approach to looking at what their biosecurity should be and then use some common sense. I mean, I know people that have told me they've put in double fences and they've gone and put chicken wire or, or um, excuse me, screen around the whole place and cheesecloth and all kind of extreme things, and that, that's okay. Does everybody need to do that? Well, it depends on the risk. Let's face it, if you're in an area that so far, knock on wood, you haven't had the virus present, then maybe you don't need to be as cautious as somebody that lives within 15 minutes of where it's been found before. So you, it all comes down to what, what your risk assessment is and how much risk you're willing to take. That's good information. You mentioned a foot bath, and there's been a lot of talk of disinfectants. Can you tell us about proper use of disinfectants and contact time with those? Well, let's face it. The cheap, if I was going to have a foot bath today, I, I would use Clorox. And for Clorox, you're going to want to make sure that it, it's not going to be full of all dirt, debris, and stuff, because that's going to diminish its its activity. And you're going to want to hopefully keep it on your, your boots, shoes, whatever you're going to use for five to 10 minutes to get some benefit. So that's why I would recommend if you're going to have people come in or you're going in and out, I'd use boots, make sure you clean them. And, and that'd be the cheapest. You know, there's all kind of other products out there, the phenolics and stuff. The, but I, I would use just good old household bleach 
dilute household bleach and um that's that's the product I would use for a foot bath. You only have to have it a couple inches deep and change it as needed. So bleach is cheap and available. Yes. So, um, you mentioned the new guidelines that the ARBA has issued to help prevent the spread of RHDV2. How were those developed? Well, that's a super question. So a year ago, in fact, about this time, the ARBA put their new uh, at that time, there are new guidelines in place, and we really didn't know what was going to happen. There had been a few outbreaks, and the question was, what do we do to stop this? So we really didn't know. And at that time, the decision was made that it would be 250 miles from an outbreak for people to exhibit and for anybody to go to a show. And at the time, I think that was prudent. What we found since that time, though, is that distance really doesn't seem to matter much as far as outbreaks. Um, you know, the, as I said, the virus can't can't walk. People are probably the spreaders. In fact, if you talk to most of the people at the government, they still think people are the ones that are transmitting this virus around, whether that's in rabbit rescue, and I'm not going to pick on anybody, or just people rescuing or moving rabbits, or it's getting on bedding, or some people think hay or whatever, that that is how it's moving around. So if that was the case, then we didn't think that um, the 250 mile radius piece made that much sense to continue to have that hardship for folks. So I've worked with several of the directors, specifically the couple of the directors that are in the, what we call the hot zone area, you know, Colorado, uh, Wyoming, New Mexico, Arizona, West Texas, Southern California now and stuff. And I said, why don't we think about this from two areas? First is what we call the feral or wild rabbits. And unfortunately we got lots of people that turn rabbits loose and, Doggone it, some of them make it a long time. And um, some of them don't, but, you know, the ones that do, they tend to be pretty hardy and they're reproducing. That's kind of what happened, they said, up there in uh, British Columbia and Washington where they had the outbreak up there that those were feral rabbits. So we thought these rabbits aren't going to travel very far. So Based on what we do for some of our other diseases, and specifically I was looking at, because I got a lot of experience with poultry, and in poultry what we do is we think about here's a zone where there's known infection, okay? Then around it we think about a buffer zone where we don't know what's going on there, but then there's a zone around that that's controlled, and then we have a surveillance area. Now, we're not doing all that for rabbits right now, and I'll, I'll talk about that in just a second, but based on that distances that we usually talk about for poultry and a little bit of a fudge factor for safety, I propose that the board consider 30 miles for the feral and wild rabbits. And then the other piece was, we were saying that it was 250 for domestic, and I said, well, we know that the domestic rabbits, some of them are people that could be going to our ARBA shows or, or county fairs and stuff. 
But we were we were getting at that time into when there were going to be more shows, rabbit shows, whether that's fairs or ARBA sanctioned shows. So we said, let's back that down to 125 miles so we can see what happens. And I say that because let's face it, we are we are hopeful and we still plan to have shows throughout the country this year and, and an ARBA convention. And I and when I presented all this to the board, I said, I would much rather us find out if there's going to be an outbreak at a local show or a county fair than when we get to the ARBA convention and then it's going to be everywhere. So what we were trying to do is kind of like we're seeing right now with the coronavirus in people, things look like maybe we know enough more about the virus that we can do some more things and continue to emphasize biosecurity to the folks and come out of our house and try to join the real world again. Now, that sounds all fine and dandy. If you're some of the folks right now in Colorado and, you know, some areas in Wyoming and California, Southern California, where the virus is, unfortunately, there's still some problem areas, but at least most of the country, it's it's starting to open up and we hope it's going to continue. Now, once this virus jumped and was mutated and was in the wild rabbits, there's not much we can do about that because you can't go out and kill all the wild rabbits. But the one thing people need to know is that some states are very vigilant. And I've talked to numerous state vets, and I can tell you the state of California has got people out there because they've got some of these rare pikas, some of these mountain rabbits, if I can say that, that they're trying to protect. So they got people walking around looking, making sure they're okay. They've got actual people paying to do some of that. Other states don't have much of a budget for rabbits. So once they say they're positive, some of them aren't even testing much anymore. So we need to take that into consideration that at least for the wild rabbits, when you have fish and wildlife managing it and there isn't a big budget, that it's probably being underreported right now. And that's why I thought, 30 miles sounds reasonable knowing rabbits don't travel very far because if we start seeing some big die-offs, then people are going to know. Versus the domestic rabbits, they're still reportable. Most states are still going in and doing what we call test and slaughter. You know, if it's positive, then they clean up the area and move on. Now, every state isn't doing that, and all states are sovereign, just like some states right now if there's a positive there, just like this is what Florida did, they found a few strange rabbits that were positive. They went went in, cleaned the area up, and they didn't authorize vaccination in that state. Other states, if there's um, rabbits that are positive, even California right now isn't making you euthanize all the rabbits. You get rid of the ones that are sick and watch them, and then you can vaccinate the rest. So it's very different from state to state. And right now, I think the ARBA is doing the same thing a lot of the, the states are doing. We're trying to gather as much information as we can so we can make the best decisions and uh, to help people protect their hobby, to protect their animals, and to hopefully be able to get out and have a good experience. 
And I like that you mentioned protect the hobby because that really, that invokes both protecting herds and protecting our ability to continue to show and breed and do these things um, that are the reason we have our herds. Yeah, because if we can't show them, let's face it, after a while, you've just got a hobby hobby farm. You can't do anything with it. And and I know we've lost some members through this. And, and, you know, our membership now is slowly increasing. So hopefully we're headed in the right direction. Do I think this is going to go away? No, I think we're going to live with it for a while. But for right now, at least at least there's some light at the end of the tunnel for most of us. And hopefully in the Southwest, things are going to get a little bit better. I mean, the big thing is, and I want to stress to everybody, when we've worked with the government and the board had a conversation with the government here in the last two weeks to, to get an update on where we were. The big thing we want to do is we want to make sure we're not part of a super spreader event where rabbits come in that are positive and then they go out and next thing you know, 10 foreign countries and all 50 states are positive, if you know what I mean. So we're trying to be cautious, but then we also need to be logical that there's only so much we can do as an association. And, and, and really the success of what we're trying to do as an association depends on everybody doing their part to, to help each other. Absolutely. We are all in this together. So I have seen a few common questions about the new guidelines. Um, so I'll ask you a few of those briefly. First, why is the use of shavings in carriers no longer recommended? Well, that's a great question. One, the, the, the folks we talk to at the government, they think that as far as risk um, for spread of the virus, number one is people. And people means whether that's rabbit rescue people moving them around, whether that be a rabbit transporter that could move them around, whether that's a rabbit exhibitor that can move them around. So that's number one. Number two that the government thinks is, you know, let's face it, we have a lot of fields. And especially if, when I talk to my colleagues down in the Southwest, New Mexico, Arizona and all that, they have a lot of fields where they grow hay and straw. Well, and I know the chances are remote, but it only takes one that those areas, the, the hay or straw could be contaminated, and then that could be used for bedding shipped to point A, B, or C. And the same way with the shavings, if they're being sourced from that area, and they may all be at the same feed mill or whatever, and they get contaminated, and then they're shipped out. So that was part of the reason that we tried to, or we didn't try, we recommended that people consider alternate um, uh, material for their carrying cases. And I know some people don't agree with that, but we're, it goes back to that risk assessment. You know, what is the most likely source of the virus in spreading it and how do we diminish that? And so that that's why that was part of the recommendation. And I can tell you, working with the government, they really appreciated that because we're trying to make sure we educate everybody on a potential weakness in the system. Now, that doesn't mean that every bale of hay or even your feed or, or the shavings you're using are contaminated. But you need to be cautious and say, okay, where is this being sourced from? And 
And do I trust that area and things like that? So let's face it. If, and, I've, and I've been to several shows recently and people had straw in their cages and we talked about it a little bit. If you're right now east of the Mississippi, most of those people think, hey, we don't have it. It shouldn't be a problem. And if you're west of the Mississippi right now, and I say Mississippi because, you know, rabbits don't swim very well. So that should be a natural boundary for us, hopefully, to 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 see how the virus spreads. But if you're west of the Mississippi, then that's real, that it could be on the hay, it could be on the straw, and it could be on the shavings and things. And and you need to think about any way that virus could be transmitted. So I think that that was part of the logic, if that helps. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think we'll clear up some of the questions. I know that I definitely prefer the uh, odor reducing capabilities of shavings over puppy pads, but you know, puppy pads are very quick and easy to change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So as a rabbit owner, would you feel comfortable driving to a show if you had to go through areas where RHDV2 had been diagnosed? Well, if it if it had been diagnosed in the past and it wasn't active, I think I would be cautious. I wouldn't be afraid to drive through, but I'd make sure prior to going to the show that I went to a car wash and cleaned the undercarriage and things like that. And and, I, and I'll tell you one thing: all the years I've been a judge, anytime I go to a show, I never went out to see my own rabbits for at least twenty four hours. I'd go home, change clothes, take a shower, get my shoes cleaned and everything. And that was before we even worried about rabbit hemorrhagic disease because I didn't want to bring anything home, if you know what I mean. So I, I don't I think you can be um, too, too lackadaisical. I don't know if you can be too cautious. I mean, let's face it. Every time we get out of bed every day, <laughs> there's a risk something could happen. But you can't be paralyzed. But you still also have to use some common sense and say, Okay, what what's in the best interest of me and my rabbitry and my animals if I go to this show? So I wouldn't hesitate, but I'd make sure I had some common sense things, like I said, such as washing my vehicle and cleaning my shoes and things like that. That's good advice. I think with both RHD and COVID, we've all kind of been in a constant state of risk assessment over the past year and a half or so. So yeah, and I don't know if everybody really appreciates that. You know, I, I flew not too long ago and there was this, uh, I'll call him crotchety old man that sat in, in the middle seat in front of me and his wife sat. I was on the aisle and three times the flight attendant came by and got on him about wearing his mask over his nose. And he made some comments. And finally, the third time, the lady goes, if I say it again, you're off. The, gonna, we're going to bar you from getting back on another flight. And the, the woman elbowed him. She goes, I tried to tell you. <laughs> so, you know, some people are more resistant than others. And whether we like it or not, that's the world we live in right now, that things are different than they used to be. I, I remember some of the travels I've taken, and I've been to some interesting foreign countries. And I guess I was pretty naive. I didn't think much of it. And I used to jog all the time. And I'd put on my jogging clothes and go out and run through the neighborhoods and stuff. And thinking back, I I could have been shot and killed. Nobody even knew where I was for days. But, you know, things are different now. So we, we got to use a little more common sense these days. That we do. 
So we've heard some kind of discussion about practices at the show. Um, what steps would you recommend show committees take to disinfect equipment prior to or during their shows? I think the, the big thing is in between shows, uh, and I was at a show the other day, and, you know, and there was all the mice droppings in the pens and the spiders, every spider webs everywhere and stuff. I mean, let's face it, most people, when they get done with the show, they're so darn tired, they just want to go home. And I think it's important before the next show for people to get things out and clean them with whatever disinfectant. And I go back to good old household bleach since it's the cheapest. Clean things good. And, you know, you don't want to leave bleach on for long because it's corrosive. But make sure you clean things, clean the carpeting and stuff. There's not a whole lot you can do during the show, um, but try to keep things as clean as you can. Have hand sanitizer there because, you know, anybody that handles many rabbits knows some of them have, you know, whether they have diarrhea or runny noses and things like that. But I think it goes back to, once again, that common sense thing is um, what are you going to accept for for uh, for the level of sanitation? And I know I've been to some shows where things were, pretty funky. Um, You know, some of the holding pens are pretty wet and slimy and stuff, but I think, I think it's paramount for the exhibitors to remind the show committee and the show committee to police themselves. I think, I think that's very important as we, as we go ahead. I mean, I can't say we've always done that the best, but in this day and age, it's just got to be done. The show committee during the show and especially prior to putting animals in the pens, everything needs cleaned again. So. Yeah, it's an extra step, but I think it's well worth it to um, both ease exhibitors minds and help prevent disease transmission. Yeah. So are there any steps that you would recommend judges take during the show to prevent disease transmission? I can tell you myself, virtually between every class, you know, I always have a towel and, a lot of times between breeds, I'll go rinse it off and start over. But I wash my hands quite a bit anymore now. And and um, I don't know where we're headed because I haven't done a show now here in Ohio. Effective yesterday, you didn't have to wear a mask. And I don't know where that's headed because our, our illustrious governor said, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. But if you're not, you should. I don't know how you, how you know who's who. We don't have a big star on our forehead if we got vaccinated or didn't but um yeah I'm, I'm not sure where where all that's where that's headed but you know at the end of the day we've we're starting to to go out and, and join the real world again and we're, we're going to get exposed to things but at, at least we're getting out there again yes yes that we are and i'm i'm enjoying that too yeah So you touched on this a little bit when we talked about the new ARBA guidelines, Um, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about how the ARBA has been involved in policymaking decisions at some of the state and national levels. Well, luckily, and I can tell you clear back when we had the first outbreak of rabbit hemorrhagic disease, at that time we called it VHD viral hemorrhagic disease, when we had that first outbreak in Iowa in 2000, um, I had been, when I was president at that time and had a pretty good relationship with the federal government. And we had quite a few um, calls and stuff with them. And 
since that time, we've been able to maintain that relationship. So things are things are going pretty good from that standpoint. Since that time, then, um, you know, when when we had other outbreaks, and I know the ARBA office and and when Josh Humphreys was president, we had a good relationship. So now that I'm back in as president, I know a lot of these people personally, and they, whether we do email or we've had some webinars or we've had some uh, Zoom meetings with them to make sure we understand what their expectations are, because they really can't mandate to us and we can't mandate to them, but at least if we're communicating, then they, they know where we're headed. And several of the state vets and several of the states I've personally talked to about um, what their expectations are and how they interpret their own rules. Because and I know a lot of people get excited about having to get health certificates in some of the states. Well, I don't know a state that hasn't required health certificates for as long as I've been a veterinarian, but they didn't enforce it. And let's face it, why didn't they enforce it? Because there aren't enough people to stop everybody that's hauling an animal across state lines to to monitor it. But now with this disease, the radar is up. And so they're watching things a little closer. So that's something that working with some of the states, I've been able to help address some of their concerns as we move ahead and and how they're going to enforce it. And some states have been enforcing it quite a bit and some haven't been. So it's a, you know, it's a state by state issue. The other thing that we've dealt with is I've worked with several of our states in the is fish and wildlife. And I can tell you, there's a new um, committee that I, I'm, I was invited to participate in because they're trying to decide, A, what kind of budget, if any, do we need for the next year or two to address how do we handle rapid hemorrhagic disease virus and how do we educate the government and the state vets and veterinarians in general and manage this um, disease. So I think it's very promising that they've reached out to us as an ARBA and want to work with us and they're willing to listen to us and that um, we can hopefully help shape policy and provide guidance. So I think that's a feather in the cap of the ARBA as we move ahead. And I don't know what the final outcome is going to be, but at least we've got a seat at the table and we can know firsthand what some of their plans and strategy may be. And then we can, we can provide input on that. Yeah, that's definitely something to be proud of. Um, are there any other rabbit organizations that are part of this, or is the ARBA the only one? Right now, we're the only ones. Outstanding. Right, right. The last discussion I had, I don't know where it's heading. This was within the last two weeks. Um, Fish and Wildlife, USDA, um, ARBA, and then they were um, going to have a, uh, a pathologist from the university. So. I'm not sure where it's all going to head, but that's that's preliminary where we're where the start where the situation starts. Well, it's very promising and encouraging that we are involved in that, and we do have that seat at the table. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So as we know, um, currently all the vaccine against RHVD2 must be imported from Europe and they're only available in states where RHDV2 has been diagnosed, um, except like you said, with the exception of Florida, that was something I just learned. Um, we've been, we've heard and we've been talking about the possibility of a domestically produced vaccine. Is there any news on that front? Well, there is one company that has made some submissions and is pursuing licensure. And the first step for um, the company is they have to, to get some of the seeds and cell stocks approved. You know, they have to get a permit to get the virus since it's still considered a foreign animal disease. So they had to get that virus and then declare a master seed and make a vaccine to do uh, an efficacy study. And what that is, that's a vaccination challenge study where they show that animals that are vaccinated don't get the disease or have less disease problems than the unvaccinated animals. And they had hoped that they were going to get all those studies done and be ready to start doing field safety studies, which is the last part of licensure. They had hoped they were going to be able to get to that sometime late summer, early fall this year. And the last I hear is those some of those studies are, are um, not progressing as quickly as they had hoped. So I'm not sure where they may be. They're still interested. The company still wants to get a license to produce vaccine here in the U.S., but my best guess is it's not going to be as quickly as they anticipated, and it may be, it may be early to mid next year before something, before something would get approved. And that's just me speculating because I don't have access to all their data, so... Yeah, well, that's a process that you've been involved in, and and progress is encouraging on that front. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're and they still are interested, and they want to do it. But you know, that's why it's science, and they got to keep working through it. You know, same way with these coronavirus vaccines for people, as we saw that some of the companies made it through a little quicker than others, and some some of the companies appear to have a product that's maybe not as um, has many safety issues as others. So. It just takes time to work through these these problems. That is the scientific method. Yep. Um, so as we talked about earlier, many states are now enforcing CVI requirements for exhibitors coming to a show. And that's made things a little bit more expensive and challenging for people who either want to comply with that voluntarily or are forced to because um, some states, I know, are checking those at the door. Um, what suggestions do you have for people who are maybe looking for a veterinarian that can conduct these at a reasonable price? I think the, the first thing is, is to not be afraid to ask around. You know, I, when I was in vet practice for years and years, we'd have people that would, we knew, we knew people were calling everybody. I knew the other vets in town and, you know, we knew the people that were price shopping and all that. And that's okay. I, I, don't, I don't blame them. Some people had a little bit higher fees than others. And, you know, let's face it, it varies per city. You know, the, the price of something in, Southern Ohio may be a whole lot different than in L.A., in Los Angeles, California, or New York City. I understand that. So I think the first thing is, is to find a veterinarian you can work with and you have confidence in. And, and I know I did, I had mixed practice. So I did large animal, small animal. I did everything. Um, and those tended to be, the veterinarians that did large animals tended to be the ones that 
wrote more health certificates, guy, because I did a lot of fair work here in Southern Ohio. That doesn't mean they aren't the ones that are maybe a little more understanding, but those tended to be the ones that I found were. So I think the key is, is patience. And, you know, let's face it, some veterinarians are not real um, confident in working with rabbits. So you may have to, if you're trying to get health certificates, at least take them in a a blurb from the USDA that says these are the clinical signs we're looking for. Because when you get a health certificate, all you're doing is the veterinarian signs it and they say they're free of contagious and infectious diseases that day. And so, um, and then and some, and some people, you know, all the veterinarian wants to take their temp and look at all these things. And I can tell you any shows I've been at where there was a, an area vet in charge or a local veterinarian doing health certificates. I always go up and talk to them to see what they're doing. And most of them, they don't even handle the rabbits. They have the people tell them the information. They have somebody to be a scribe and fill out the forms. Then they just go around and look in each cage and say, okay, they look healthy because let's face it. How many people are going to bring a, uh, a sick rabbit to a rabbit show anyhow. So, so they're understanding and going to do their part, but, um, I think more than anything, it's it's about building a relationship and and knowing that some places are going to charge a whole lot more than others, and it's just you know what 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 you're willing to pay. Because I mean, I know I've heard some pretty outrageous prices people charge, and then I've had people tell me they you know they got them for ten dollars for the health certificate and a dollar a rabbit after that. So I've heard some I've heard some extremes. So. Yeah, it does seem to be kind of all over the board. <laughs> that um, the relationship building that you were talking about kind of leads into um, my last question here, um, both in society at large and, you know, legal definitions in our states and cities, rabbits kind of straddle the line between pets and livestock. And to some people, they're both. To some people, they're definitely livestock. To other people, they're definitely pets. Um, we know the ARBA and the house rabbit groups have very different care guidelines for domestic rabbits. You know, the diets, the, you know, type of veterinary care, the housing, it's all very different. Um, and in some areas, those house rabbit or rescue groups have really taken a large initiative to try to educate vets about what they see to be the preferred or best practices. Um, so what advice would you have for someone who's maybe wanting to find a vet to establish a relationship with, but looking for something, someone with more of a livestock mentality or just, just someone who's open to listening to ARBA care guidelines? Well, now that's a great question because some states don't even classify rabbits, which that's a double-edged sword. That can be good and bad. You know, some of them classify them as livestock and you know, it's it's all over the board, as you were saying, Brainy. I, I um, I just know that the best thing you can do is to to feel it out. Maybe if you have a another pet, when you take that pet in, ask the veterinarian, "Hey, what do you think about rabbits?" And um, I don't, I, I like I said before, I think the veterinarians that tend to work on livestock tend to look at it a little more from a holistic standpoint, and that doesn't mean that the People that work only on pets are bad. They just tend to think of it more as everything's a pet. And I, I had a friend of mine one time used to say, if it has a name, you'll get paid. And if it's just a number, they, people probably won't pay you. And that, that was kind of a jilted way to look at it. But because I know when I was in, in, in vet practice, you know, a lot of the 
the animals were just just like with rabbits were tattooed with a number and and um, as soon as it's got some attachment to it and has a name then people are going to spend a little more money that's the perception at least from the pet people if i can say that so that doesn't mean everybody does it but i think the key is is once again just finding somebody you're comfortable with and and um asking around or going to the as things are opening up now try to drive to the uh to the vet's office and say hey can i meet with them for a few minutes and just ask them this and or ask the lay staff sometimes the lay staff know as much as the uh anybody as far as what the policies are for the for the vet practice that's really good advice. Um, yeah, I think it is about that relationship building. I was fortunate enough to grow up with a great rabbit vet. Um, so I thought it was odd, you know, when people would say, oh, you go to a vet. Well, yeah, I have a good one. Um, but he's he likes exotics. He does both small animal and large animal and, and frequently would tell other vets or employees they're a lot more like horses than they are like cats or dogs. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Hayhow. I think this is going to be some really valuable information, not only some timely information on the progress with RHDV2, but also some timeless information about good management practices. Um, I think this is one episode our listeners are probably going to either take notes from or come back to again for some of this information. Um, hopefully, we'll, we can get this spread widely and just um, kind of help promote the good health and management of rabbits at large. So, we want to thank you for your time and and the mentorship that you've offered everybody in this hobby with um you know with being so generous with your advice and your wise counsel and rabbit and KV health. Thank you and I hope I hope somebody learned something tonight and it helps them. So Well, I know I already did. So <laughs> thank you again. Uh, thank you. Brandy, that was such a great interview with Dr. Hayhow. Again, he came back, you know, two weeks in a row. He's a busy guy, still teaching. He is uh, president, of course, of the Airbnb. I don't know how he finds the time in his day to do anything other than his job and his dedication to the Airbnb, but he he did slip in two fantastic hours for us over the last two weeks. And um, his talk tonight was fabulous. I think that anyone that raises rabbits and KVs appreciates some of that basic stuff, like knowing what you keep in your in your medicine cabinet, what you what's your go-to, you know, when you've got a problem. Because let's face it, you know, we've got some big um, you know, I was like world problems when it comes to rabbit pandemics now, but the basic stuff like, like pinworms, like coccidiosis, ear mites, those are things that we still deal with as rabbit breeders and we'll probably continue to deal with, but there are, are things we can do to prevent them and, and to squelch them. Um, and so kind of a nod to our science based episode, I picked, um, for our education segment this time, an article from the World Rabbit Science Association. And if anyone's interested in learning more about them, they do a World Rabbit Congress every few years. The uh, 2020 World Rabbit Congress, which was to be in Nantes, France, was actually canceled because of COVID, uh, but it is rescheduled. But they do um, probably the, the most work in terms of rabbit science, contemporary rabbit science in the world. And they do a lot of, a lot of work with commercial aspects of of the industry heavily in Europe because that's where rabbits are raised commercially anymore uh, for, you know, people that are going to cons consume them. And actually this article tonight comes out of um, from Pakistan where there's a growing number of rabbit breeders there, both on the show and commercial side. Um, and it's, while it's also science, it also ties into what's going on this time of year, uh, which is summer heat. And anyone that raises rabbits in a really hot climate knows that 
bucks just don't quite do it in the summer. And their their viability, their sperm is not so good. You know, I, we live where it's really hot. Like today, for example, it was almost 100. It will be almost 100 or over 100 for the next three or four months. So our breeding season comes to a screeching halt, whether we like it or not, because the bucks just aren't making viable sperm. So this article from the World Rabbit Science Association um, by doctors uh, Nasir Ahmad Aksoy and Epic Men, again, from the Agriculture University there in Pakistan, is titled um, Quercetin and Testicular Functions in Summer Heat Stress. So we all know what summer heat stress is. That's it's hot. Rabbits don't like it. Let's face it. They're covered in a fur coat. They would rather be cold. <laughs> so when that happens, though, in commercial rabbitries, especially regardless of the time of year, you've got to keep breeding these. You've got to you know get ready for that next generation. And uh, when you're making a food source, it's a year-round operation. So this article, uh, quercetin and testicular functions in summer heat stress, deals with um, the additive quercetin, which I have to admit, I did not know what it was. I even had to Google sound it to figure out how to say it. But it um, has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effects, which may reduce inflammation, cancer cells, and control blood sugar, as well as help prevent heart disease. And you're going to think, well, how on earth does this fall into <laughs> testicular functions in rabbits in summer heat? Well, I'll read you the abstract, and then you'll know pretty quickly what's going on. So from this article, uh, again, quercetin and testicular functions in summer heat, these authors, these scientists, uh, had a current study designed to um, you know, see the effects of quercetin on epididymal sperm and testicular changes in male rabbits during summer heat stress. They used 12 adult male New Zealand rabbits, and they were submitted in summer heat convention conditions of about 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, one group was fed a basal ration, whereas the other group was fed the same dietary but supplemented with quercetin. Both groups were sacrificed at the end of the experiment. Um, Epididymis and testicle isolation was done for sperm, histiopathy, and apoptosis. Apoptos, apoptos <laughs> assessments. The assessments showed that quercetin improved epididymis weight, but did not affect other testicular dimensions, including, or sorry, excluding testicular length, which is interesting. Um, a significant improvement was observed in epididymal sperm motility. That's the movement of sperm, concentration, kinematic parameters, viability, mitochondrial potential, and acrosome integrity. Um, there were some other kind of interesting findings, but in the end, moreover, the quercetin supplementation maintained the interstitial stroma, seminiferous tubule architecture, germinal and stratoli cells under heat stress, decreasing apoptotic germ cell rate and seminiferous tubules. Okay, what does all mean? <laughs> in conclusion, heat stress conditions where rabbits are, are breeding, particularly bucks, the sperm and the testes in terms of their configuration in rabbits with the addition of dietary quercetin, minimized oxidative stress, which also in turn protected the testes and sperm against heat stress-induced damage. So in essence, what they're saying is that quercetin added to the rabbit diet in this study um, reduced inflammation and had some other anti-inflammatory effects, um, also maybe antioxidant effects, which then allowed these bucks to have viable modal sperm during heat stress, which you can imagine if you're breeding rabbits literally in the hundreds of thousands, which um, the commercial operations in Europe are done, 
if you have summer heat stress and let's say it, let's face it, Pakistan is a hot climate, for example, um, the addition to this, uh, this additive would be like momentous and a game changer in your operation uh, and, and prevent you from having to either keep bucks in a cold place or just halt breeding um, totally. And um, I know out here, like I said, we deal with this all the time in the summer. It basically, it's, it becomes a very dull time of year to braid rabbits because the bucks just aren't doing their job. So by the way, this percent night, I looked it up. You can buy it. Uh, it's not like it's some you know, prescription drug. It's, it's a, it's an additive, it's a, it's a supplement that you can buy online. I don't know the dosage and we are not recommending that you just like start feeding this stuff to your, to your rabbits. But, um, this article, uh, says that it actually does work. So interesting stuff. That's very interesting. I know we deal with that, you know, in Kansas too, we get hot. I've been blessed this year that we've had kind of a prolonged spring, which we don't always have. Um, a lot of times by mid-June, we're kind of done with breeding too. But interesting that there's there may be something really easy on the horizon for us. Yeah, no kidding. I think that you can just buy it. I, I mean, I looked basically online and there were some online places that were selling it, but I think you can buy it at like GNC. So this is not some some weird drug. It's it's something that we're people are already using for anti-inflammatory. Very interesting. All right. I think that leads us to the end of our episode 14. And um, Brian, do you have any concluding, uh, any words for us? Well, I wanted to say that I, I hope all of you have enjoyed the interviews that we've done with Dr. Hayhow. Um, sometimes, uh, I don't know, people are a little bit nervous to maybe approach people in the hobby that are, you know, officers or things like that. But Dr. Hayhow is actually a very approachable guy and loves, loves answering your questions. And I know that one of his big contributions to the hobby and a lot of things or one of the things that people our age talk about a lot is he's really mentored a lot of people in leadership positions. I know Josh Humphreys always talks about that Chris mentored him through his presidency, which he assumed at a pretty young age. Um, I know that he's provided a lot of mentorship and leadership to uh, myself, to Eric Stewart, and he's really someone who has developed a lot of leaders in this hobby. And that that impact of that is far-reaching, we hope. It's so far reaching, you know, he's affected every single one of us. And I told him that last week, I said, you know, whether you've directly worked with any of us one-on-one, -on -one, your work has influenced and mentored us. And it's allowed us to, to, you know, uh, progress and to try new things. Like for gosh sakes, we never thought we'd have a podcast on, on rabbits. Right. But if we didn't, if we had just kind of like a stick in the mud kind of association where nothing happened, you know, the, the creativity juices wouldn't flow and they certainly do. And I really, it's a special nod to him and all that he's done and, and supporting our generation too, you know, the Briny and, and Alan, the people that are, that are of the younger side, because he comes from the older, the older generation. He's, he's very paternal in his approach. And um, that's actually going to lead into our, our conclusion here today, which is a quote, which we love to do every time now. Um, and Brian, was so kind to share with me a page from the April, May, June issue of The Dutch Reporter. And Dr. Scott Williamson, who we talk about quite a bit on this podcast, he is the District 3 reporter or the director for The Dutch Club. And she sent me a, a screenshot of his article. And it's so fascinating. It's, and it's very Scott Williamson, if you know him, um, he begs the topic of, in fact, leadership, which really ties into what Brian just said. And he says, what can we do to cultivate it? And he gives about five or six amazing quotes from 
around the world. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a gold mine for quotes, but which one do I choose? And ultimately I, I decided on this one and it really, it sums up what we've talked about with Dr. Hayhow over the last two weeks and, and every mentor that every one of us has ever had in rabbits because in orcavies mentors are why we're here. So that quote from Dr. Scott Williamson's district three report says, the single biggest way to impact an organization is to focus on leadership development. There is almost no limit to the potential of an organization that recruits good people, raises them up as leaders, and continually develops them. And the author of that is John Maxwell. I think that perfectly sums it up. Yes, Excellent it choice. Thank you. Well, thank you for sharing it with me. <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a wonderful week wherever you are. And uh, please continue to tune in. And we would really appreciate your feedback. If you're on Apple Podcasts, it's as easy as just clicking that five star. We really appreciate that. Dropping us a comment on there. Um, or again, even emailing us through our email address, which again is podcastbestinshow at gmail.com. Bryony, what do we say every time when we conclude? Talk rabbits and talk cavies. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.